from BBC Radio 4, Britain's biggest paranormal podcast, is going on a road trip. I thought in that moment, oh my God, we've summoned something from this board. This is Uncanny USA. He says, somebody's in the house, and I screamed. Listen to Uncanny USA wherever you get your BBC podcasts. If you dare. This is your moment, your time to shine, your comeback. You're ready for the next step in your career, and you want an education employer's respect. So you're not just going back to school. You're coming back with Purdue Global. Backed by Purdue University, one of the nation's most respected public universities, Purdue Global is built for people who bring their life experience into the online classroom. Purdue Global, Purdue's online university for working adults. Start your comeback today at purdueglobal.edu. It's like the police knew who he was before they got here. From iHeart Podcasts. The medical school dean at USC was leading a secret double life. Breathing. Right now? Yes, he's absolutely breathing. I'm a doctor, actually. A story about money, power, and corruption. When people fall in line, they fall in line. Looking back, I realized, oh, everyone knew. I'm Paul Pringle, an investigative reporter for the LA Times. Listen to Fallen Angels, a story of California corruption, on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcast, or wherever you get your podcasts. The 2024 presidential campaign features two candidates who are very well-known to Americans. And yet, there's complexity at every turn. Criminal trials for one of those candidates. Young voters who are angry. The Campaign Moment podcast from The Washington Post gives you what matters. I'm Aaron Blake, and I'm covering my 10th election cycle. My colleagues and I have insights that you won't find anywhere else. So follow the Campaign Moment right now, wherever you're listening. Hey, I'm Jay Shetty, and I'm the host of the On Purpose podcast, and I had the opportunity to talk to one of Hollywood's major icons, Michael B. Jordan. In our conversation, Michael shares the highs, the lows, and everything in between, offering a genuine glimpse into his world. The closest to getting what you want is always the hardest. People give up right before they get what they've always wanted to get. Listen to On Purpose with Jay Shetty on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. This is the Anxiety Bites podcast, and I am your host, Jen Kirkman. That's right, there is a brand new episode of this podcast, even during this holiday week. I know a lot of other podcasts throw up a best of episode or they just take the week off completely. Not us over here at Anxiety Bites. Well, I mean, technically, this is being recorded the week before and I will allow myself some time off as will the producers of this show. But we all felt it was really important to just keep the train going, have new episodes every week. Why take time off? So I hope that you appreciate and I hope you enjoy having something new to listen to. Hopefully you you got this when you really needed it. And speaking of recording in advance, my guest today is Sarah Wilson, and I will tell you more about her in a minute. But we recorded this interview, I think the summer of 2021, about six months ago. And, you know, we've recorded a lot of interviews in advance so that we could get ahead of things. But sometimes I don't air things right away. And I was saving Sarah's for 
I don't know. I just was trying to find the perfect place to put it. And I think we've landed on the good place for this episode, which is that awkward week between Christmas and New Year's. Even if you don't celebrate either one, there is just this kind of way to mark time. It's the last week of the year. Maybe you've just seen family. Maybe you skipped seeing family due to this crazy wave of Omicron that seems to be evading sometimes vaccines. I I don't even want to get into it because personally, it is bringing me down, to put it mildly. And uh, But that's okay. I'm letting myself be in that kind of melancholy place, you know, um, I'm not five years old. I don't have to be overly excited at Christmas time. I will be fine. It'll just be a little bit of melancholy, but overall very grateful that my family and I are healthy. But I don't know, this week I always think is is interesting. I, I, I can see where it might bring up a lot of things for people. Maybe you've just seen your family and maybe that was upsetting. Maybe it was great and you're sad to go back home because you missed them. Maybe you're looking at your credit card statement and thinking, oh boy, how did I spend all this money? Oh God, you know, maybe you're dreading New Year's Eve uh, because you don't have plans or because you do have plans. Maybe you're looking forward to making resolutions or maybe you're not. I think this week can bring up a lot of things for people. For me, I actually kind of like this week because it's a nice limbo. The world seems kind of asleep, kind of shut down. I don't like the first week of January. I feel bombarded with other people's goals and resolutions and challenges and energy coming at me. It's a lot. But I like this week because it's this sleepy kind of time where it's the last week of the year. People are tired, exhausted, had too much sugar. Maybe they have the week off work. It's just sort of eat leftovers, wear your pajamas. That's that's at least how it is for me because I happen to have the week off of work. So I kind of like this week. I kind of wish the whole year could feel like this week. Just kind of lazy. It's not time to take the lights down yet. Still have our Christmas lights up. And yeah, you you can eat pie for breakfast. I mean, come on, it's left over from Christmas. You know, I, there's something about this week I like. Yeah, throw on another movie. And I tend to get very sad when this week is over because I feel like it's never enough rest and relaxation. And uh, so there's something about being in that middle and sitting in something that I feel is really appropriate for airing this episode this week with my guest, Sarah Wilson. She is the author of many books, but the book that we focus on really in this interview is her book about anxiety called First We Make the Beast Beautiful. And a lot of her book is about sort of just living with it, living with anxiety, living with your feelings, you know, letting it just be a part of you, a companion in your life as you go about things. And yeah, sometimes we feel like we don't know what we're doing and we feel stuck. We feel in between the way I feel, you know, during this week, we are in between two big important dates and I just kind of want to stay here and hide. And sometimes we feel like we're in between something in a bad way where we feel stuck and we want to get out. And a lot of it comes down to acceptance. Do we have to label everything? Do we have to figure everything out? And that's what I really loved about Sarah's memoir. It was just so, first of all, just beautifully written. But I really relate it. I mean, she's every time I have a guest on or read their work, there's always something that is a totally new thought for me. And, and Sarah talks about traveling. And I always am kind of curious about my own life where I travel a lot for someone with anxiety. And you know, I've gone on and on about my fear of flying and how I overcame it. But it still totally didn't used to line up to me that I loved traveling and traveling by myself so much. And 
in reading Sarah's book, it put it into perspective that that's actually kind of a part of my anxiety is like, keep moving, keep moving, keep moving, you know? Um, that sort of restlessness with when I do sit still, that especially this week, I, I think I love it. I think I love eating pie for breakfast, watching movies. Oh, and I don't want to go back to work and I don't have to do anything. But I don't know if that's necessarily true. You know, I think I think what I can do is appreciate this week for what it is and not worry about maybe I won't like it when this week is over. It's like, just be here now in this week and appreciate it for what it is. And don't try to I don't even know. Don't even worry about what you might feel like next week. And once once you feel a certain way next week, great, feel it. Go about your life. And that's what I liked about Sarah's overall message, which is, you know, anxiety exists and we can live with it. And we can also thrive because of it. So I will let you just hear my conversation with Sarah, um, a little more about her. She's a multi-New York Times and Amazon bestselling author. She's a podcaster a philanthropist, a climate advisor. She has written books uh, like the New York Times bestsellers, I Quit Sugar and First We Make the Beast Beautiful. She's an author of 11 cookbooks. And her recent book is called This One Wild and Precious Life. It won a gold Nautilus award and was seen in USA Today and Washington Post's uh, 10 new books to spotlight. In this book, um, This One Wild and Precious Life, she talks about climate change, mobilizing individuals, climate change anxiety. So maybe we'll have her back to talk about how we, how we deal with the very real anxiety of climate change. But for today, I talked to Sarah about her book, First We Make the Beast Beautiful. I hope you enjoy my conversation with Sarah Wilson, and we'll catch you on the other side. Sarah Wilson, welcome to Anxiety Bites, the podcast. Thank you so much. Oh, it's a pleasure to be here. You're in Australia, which um, it's tomorrow. For, so for people with anxiety, yeah. can you tell us <laughs> anything? You're one day ahead of us. <laughs> How is the future? Yeah, that's right. I speak from the future. Well, listen, there's nothing to worry about, or at mm. least nothing more to worry about than what you're worrying about right in this very instant. So, um, yeah, I love that. I love that kind of existential positioning that we're, we're starting off with. Because, <laughs> of course, anxiety is a fretting forward, right, into the future, and depression is a sort of a ruminating about the past. So, yes, it's very fitting. <laughs> So I wanted to start off, um, I was just reading your book. I know you have a, a more recent book out called This One Wild and Precious Life. Um, but I am referencing your other book called First We Make the Beast Beautiful, um, a new conversation about anxiety. And I want to quote you to you. This was towards the end of the book, actually, but it seemed fitting to start the interview. You were talking about, uh, you know, you give, you give such great advice in this book and you also bring up a lot of research. I mean, it's so well-researched, it's crazy. But you say at one point, also getting older does help. And you talk about a forum you held with younger people in their, in their teens and 20s. Um, you and I are roughly the same age in our 40s. And you said that they bristled around the idea of sitting in anxiety, accepting it and seeing the beauty in it. One girl blurted out, it makes me really angry. It's bullshit and it makes me more anxious. <laughs> And I thought that was so fitting because you and I are both Generation X and our anxiety, from what I read about you and from what I know about being me, started before there was an internet. Yeah, there's, there's a bunch of things to unpack there. Um, yeah. And I think the generational divide is really worth 
worth talking about because I'm sure you've got listeners of, of different age groups um, who will relate to the various aspects of what we're talking about here. So on the one hand, we didn't have the stigmatisation of having a name put over the yeah. top of stuff. And I think there is a problem in the sense that you put a name to something and then sometimes you can stop your mindful investigation. Um, mm. A lot of what we had to do, i.e. maybe go to a library or come across something in a magazine which then saw us go and have conversations three months later with somebody who might have heard of this thing called anxiety, it was actually a practice in, in resilience, you know what I mean? Yeah. And, and which can also be seen as a practice in mindfulness. So the journey of actually investigating your anxiety took you to a place where you had to harden up a bit around it and you had to develop techniques. Plus yeah. you, you had things like delaying gratification because you didn't get the answers straight away. And in that space, there was a lot of um, sort of stuff that you worked out for yourself. So there's definitely that. But going back to that quote from my book, you know, from that mm -hmm. sort of discussion group, you know, that young person was just like the idea of having to sit in it and kind yeah. of wrestle it out, you know, wrestle with your demons for a bit. Um, honestly, as every spiritualist and, I don't know, Jungian psychotherapist throughout history has said, we have to sit in the discomfort. The definition of anxiety is very much an inability to sit with uncertainty and discomfort. And hmm. at least we were probably rendered choiceless um, pre-internet because we had to. We had to sit through listlessness, boredom, not being able to fix things automatically, not having an answer straight away, um, not having a name and a drug that we could turn to. And so I think there was a lot to be said for that. The flip side, as you say, is we got a lot of stuff wrong um, yeah. and we had to go through a very long journey of ups and downs to arrive at something resembling a sweet spot and as you said I think I said to these young people sometimes the fix to anxiety is sheer years on the planet and it's because you've you've gone through these trials and tribulations and you've worked out your own your own sort of formula. But it's also, as I say in the book, it's kind of the whole gist of the book, sorry to give it away to anyone who's not read it, is that <laughs> this very wrestling is the meaning that we're searching for. Anxiety is that kind of desperate, like grasping for something else. Mm. And that something else is the meaning of life. And ironically, it's through the grasping, through the journey of getting it all wrong with anxiety, that we end up arriving at the best best place for understanding that meaning within ourselves. I think that that can be tough for people. Now, for me, honestly, I feel like it's kind of a relief. And I don't know if that's the inherent laziness that I have, but really, truly finding out and, and honestly believing it that the answer is there is no answer was such a relief. I don't think that's lazy. That's not lazy. Gosh, it it's a be. huge gargantuan. <laughs> um, I mean, it means then it's, it's this... In, it's an acknowledgement of the ultimate freedom, right, that we have then yeah. to determine our own path. And as you recall, I actually set off the journey by realising there is no guidebook to life and no yeah. one knows what they're doing, which yeah. is, of course, another thing you realise when you reach a certain age, don't you? You look around and go, oh, my God, no yeah. one actually knows what they're doing. And that is a relief because then you've got the possibility, it opens up the possibility yeah. to the fact that you can reposition 
something like anxiety. You can choose how to frame it. And as I say, um, a lesson that I got from His Holiness the Dalai Lama. Oh, it's um, my favorite part. I know exactly what you're going to say. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> I said to him, I, I got an interview with him. I was the, amb- the ambassador, the Australian ambassador to the Dalai Lama. Don't you love it? Um, great title. Um, and I just had to mention it here because if you get a title like that, you've got to share it with everyone, right? <laughs> <laughs> So um, I got to sort of do an interview for a publication and uh, they suggested I ask one question and one question only. So it turned out to be, how do I stop my mind from chattering so frenetically? How do I shut my mind up? And his Mm -hmm. answer was, don't bother. And he said, there's better things to do. Like if you went and sat in a cave on a mountain, Mm -hmm. you know, for two years and meditated, perhaps you could do it. And he said, but waste of time, waste of time. Um, you know. <laughs> I love his, I love his like casual, uh, just sense of humor almost. And just sort of like, oh, whatever, like silly, silly, like we're not yeah. doing that, you know? And he said, I don't do that because my focus is living a life of service. And his word for that is altruism. He thinks we should be focusing on altruism. And what I took from that is that you can actually, like why wait to be less anxious to live a purposeful, Mm. beautiful life. You can be both. So that was kind of the revelation, the realisation that I got from that opening of realising I can recast things as I need to. It's not like um, for for anyone who's hoping that someday they'll cure their anxiety. And of course you can. I mean, I really don't suffer anxiety every day like I used to. Um, But it's part of me and it exists. Uh, It's always there, whether or not it's being loud or quiet one day, but I have a great life. There was not this, oh, my life got good when the anxiety went. It was like when I stopped fighting it, you know? And and again, I do think that that can be really scary. I don't know if someone had said that to me a long time ago, would I have liked that answer, you know, because I didn't realize how good I could feel just feeling even a little bit better. Well, yeah. And I think what I try to do in that book is to show that once I stopped trying to fight it and make it better so that I could then get onto this wonderful other life, right? I thought it was all run up, right? All the run up was about me um, sorting myself out, you know, being like everybody else, finally finding that guidebook to life, this mythical guidebook to life. I think I say at the beginning of that book, I think I was on the toilet or putting the, hanging the washing out for mum the day that God handed out the guidebook to life, you know. <laughs> um, I sort of just missed it somewhere along the line. <laughs> so I, I think that what I, yeah, what I try to do is explain that not only can you live with anxiety, but I switch it up a gear even further and say you can actually thrive because of anxiety. And that's mm. where the title comes into play. First, we make the beast beautiful, which comes from a Chinese proverb. And it's this idea that if we can reframe anxiety and stand back from it and see what it's truly about, like why does anxiety exist as an emotion in the human experience? Well, it exists because it keeps us safe and it has also progressed the human experience. It Mm -hmm. was the neurotic um, OCD bipolar person who probably walked over the hill and saw people um, with these things called a wheel and came back and went, hey, guys, they've invented a wheel and we should get onto that kind of thing. So it was the anxious person that pushed boundaries, that Mm. was particularly cautious and would keep a clan safe, but also push boundaries, as I say. And 
the statistics bear out. Um, 70% of poets have anxiety. 70% of scientists have anxiety. Almost 100% of world leaders who led during a time of high-intensity crisis, like a war, were anxious and, in fact, in most cases were bipolar, if you think of Winston Churchill um, and so forth. Um, Artists, philosophers all had um, what in many ways was crippling anxiety. Their contribution and their art form, their inventions came about via their struggle with that that inner tension. So once you start to see it through that lens, you go, okay, this probably isn't something I should fight. How about I harness it and actually make it into my superpower? And that's the artful, more joyous way to do the dance. And that's what I'm interested in. Yeah. And I I love that because it's different than the other um, thing that sometimes people can get stuck in is if I get help for my depression or anxiety, then I'll lose my spark and I won't be a great author. I have to be tortured to be great. And that's not what you're saying there. It's it's saying that you don't you can be um, suffering with something like an anxiety and use it to your benefit, or just let it sit with you. You know, let it ride in yeah. the car with you while you're. I mean, like you were saying in your book, Darwin had panic attacks, which I just love. Yeah, that's right. I mean, and I'd say that he um, was able to come up with his theories and his contributions because of the the panic attacks. Now, that's not to say that you should just let out the string on that wild kite of your anxiety um, because you can get very, very wobbly. And really, again, if we're going to talk about the artfulness of this, the beauty of this, it is about finding that sweet spot where you can modulate it so that it serves you. And then that becomes that becomes your journey. And I describe it, you might remember the bit in the book where I talk about how having the mental illness is like carrying a shallow bowl of water around for the rest of your life. And that visual works for me. You've got to stay steady. So, um, and if you don't, then you start to get a bit unbalanced and the water starts to slosh and it's flying all over everybody else, annoying loved ones. um, And you have to keep going back to the source to refill. I love taking an analogy too far. Um, oh no, I <laughs> keep going. <laughs> so and and so you spend your life doing that, you know, crashing, burning, crashing, burning, um, rather than getting on with what you really want to be getting on with. So it is. Um, it's not about just going. Oh, don't take your medication. Don't see a therapist. Just <laughs> let that anxiety go at full throttle. Um, no. You do need to find this nice balanced place. And part of the balanced place comes about from having compassionate Mm -hmm. um, understanding of the place that anxiety plays in history, but also in your own life. So it's this kind of lovely, gentle wrestle with all of these factors. Um, But mostly, um, mostly it's about understanding things through a different framework. I mean, a lot of people get blown away when they find out that anxiety only became an official mental disorder and entered the DSM, which is the diagnostic tool used in the States and in Australia, um, in 1980. And what do you know? It was one year after the first anti-anxiety drug was invented. I don't know if anyone finds that an odd coincidence. Um, yeah, I, I, thought, I found that fascinating in your book because I thought, well, my God, you know, it was only five years after that that I had my first panic attack. I mean, you know, it wasn't even defined. And to what you're saying, it was it's kind of odd that it was defined right when the drug was 
invented. Mm. And, and it's not to say anxiety isn't real, but it made me think reading that part. God, what if anxiety is sort of just the human condition, you know, and it's not this disorder in, in the everyday sense? Yeah. Well, but the thing is, it is the human condition. To be anxious is to be human. To go back to that thread that I was, uh, that I lost temporarily, probably as a result of, of my age and my uh, veering <laughs> closer to, to that existential um, end point, um, is that, yes, yeah, so in 19, pre-1980, anxiety was seen as part of the human existence, right? It was, a, it was what we did. We, we got anxious mm. and so on. Now, um, the thing is, is when we actually pathologize anxiety, when we put it into the DSM, when we invent drugs for it that dampen anxiety, what that does is two things. First of all, it actually stigmatizes anxiety as a problem, as a bigger problem than it is. Mm. And so what we do then is it then creates an imperative to not be anxious, so then we get anxious about being anxious. And as we know, the worst thing about anxiety is that horrible death spiral of being anxious about being anxious, then being anxious that you're anxious about being anxious, and so on and so forth. And that's how anxiety gets out of control and ruins, ruins your life. Yeah. Because while ever we, we dampen or hide from or run from or pathologize anxiety, we stop ourselves from going into the very place we need to go into to resolve and naturally quieten our anxiety. So mm. we have an ex a fear, an existential fear of our death, but by talking it through and going into, well, what matters, okay, mm. and creating a meaningful life, we are actually able to resolve our anxiety. But by pathologizing anxiety, we never get to close that loop. We never get to resolve the thing that anxiety is telling us to do. Yeah. It's like, look at me, look at me. I'm, 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 you know, I'm here. I'm here to show you something, but. Yeah. It's like putting a, um, it's like there's a, there's a doorbell that's going, it's telling us we've got to show up and, and ask these wonderful questions. Right. Mm -hmm. And w w there's a silencer put on the doorbell. So that is one of the problems with, um, our contemporary understanding of anxiety. It prevents us from going to the actual point of I don't know, uh, sharpness and edginess, mm -hmm. right? Which is scary and it's uncomfortable. But ultimately yeah. it's that place then, then, that then kind of leads us to a less anxious life. And, yeah, I, 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 try, to, um, I try to encourage people to not stop taking medication, yeah. don't stop going to your therapist, but start to see it from this other perspective and the whole package can start to modulate things into a softer place where over time your anxiety does become your superpower. It becomes the very thing that resolves all that internal angst that many of us have from a very young age, like yeah. what's my life about and what happens when we die and, you know, what is love about, what matters. I mean, the question that I'm asking myself at the moment, Jen, is, if we lose everything, and, and I, I'm a climate activist, I'm very mm. engaged in these kinds of questions, but if we were to lose it all, then then what is left? And, and mm. to me, it's through years of being anxious and delving into this space and reading, soul-nerding my way through the great writers who are anxious, right, Virginia Woolf, um, Nietzsche, uh, you know, the various artists and so on that I've been able to find 
beautiful answers to these kinds of questions. And for me, um, it's really love and work is what my life is reduced to now. Love, it's a practice, a vigilant practice in love and work for the rest of my life. Yeah. And anxiety enabled me to arrive at that definition of a meaningful life. I'm here today living the most wildly exciting, wonderful, rich life only because I've gone down into that shit. You know, yeah. I've seen it, I've wrestled, I've done the dark wrestle. And um, I feel that the trigger, I mean, anxiety is our little um, warning mechanism, you know, the doorbell, yeah. so to speak. Basically, what the planet and the state of politics and the climate and um, a global pandemic, what it's trying to tell us, it's the warning system that's telling us things aren't right, pay attention um get mobilized and and be of service step up so i took the inward journey outwards which i actually think ultimately is probably one of the best cures for anxiety we'll be right back i'm katia adler host of the global story over the last 25 years i've covered conflicts in the middle east political and economic crises in europe drug cartels in Mexico. Now I'm covering the stories behind the news all over the world in conversation with those who break it. Join me Monday to Friday to find out what's happening, why, and what it all means. Follow the global story from the BBC wherever you listen to podcasts. We started talking about this incident. Drugs and uh, officials cover up. <laughs> You couldn't believe it. From iHeart Podcasts. It's like the police knew who he was before they got here. A story about money, power, and corruption. The medical school dean at USC was leading a secret double life. He's breathing. Right now? Yes, he's absolutely breathing. I'm a doctor, actually. There's no way that that guy's a doctor. I'm Paul Pringle, and I'm an investigative reporter for the LA Times. This is the story of an investigation that starts in a hotel room in Pasadena, California, and reaches all the way to the top of two of the most powerful institutions in the city of Los Angeles. When people fall in line, they fall in line. Looking back, I realized, oh, everyone knew. This is Fallen Angels, the story of California corruption. We're always going to have predators. It's the good people who stand by and do nothing that allow them to flourish. Listen to Fallen Angels. A story of California corruption on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcast, or wherever you get your podcasts. Hey, everybody. Welcome to Across Generations, where the voices of Black women unite in powerful conversations. I'm your host, Tiffany Cross. Tiffany Cross. I want you all to join me and be a part of sisterhood, friendship, wisdom, and laughter. In every episode, we gather a seasoned elder. But even with a child, there's no such thing as the wrong thing if you love them. Myself, as the middle generation, I don't feel like I have to get married yeah. at this big age in life, but it is a desire I have and something that I've navigated in dating and a vibrant young soul for engaging intergenerational conversations. I'm very jealous of your generation <laughs> yeah. that didn't have to deal with Instagram and Tinder. This is Across Generations, where Black women's voices unite, and together, you know how we do, we create magic. We create magic. Listen to Across Generations podcast on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. 
The 2024 presidential campaign features two candidates who are very well-known to Americans. And yet, there's complexity at every turn. Criminal trials for one of those candidates. Young voters who are angry. The Campaign Moment podcast from The Washington Post gives you what matters. I'm Aaron Blake, and I'm covering my 10th election cycle. My colleagues and I have insights that you won't find anywhere else. So follow the Campaign Moment right now, wherever you're listening. Hey, my name's Jay Shetty, and I'm the host of On Purpose. I just had a great conversation with Michael B. Jordan, and you can listen to it right now. Michael is known for his performances in both film and television. His breakout role was in Fruitvale Station, playing Oscar Grant, which earned him widespread praise and numerous award nominations. His portrayal of Killmonger in Marvel's Black Panther, one of my favorites, further solidified his status as one of Hollywood's leading actors, earning him widespread acclaim for his complex and compelling performance. In our conversation, Michael really opens up. You're going to love listening to it, and I can't wait for you to check it out. The closest to getting what you want is always the hardest. It's always the feeling when you're getting ready to, you know, people give up right before they get what they've always wanted to get. People quit. Listen to On Purpose with Jay Shetty on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcast, or wherever you get your podcasts. There's a lot of silly, what I call like offbeat solutions in your other book, um, First, we make the beast beautiful. And I, I loved this part where you were talking about how you were feeling a little, as you said, I think it was wobbly, a little anxious in a mall. And you yeah. just knew that you needed human contact right then, just the touch of someone. And you went to get, um, you went to the shoe, shoe shine person. No, it was a shoe store, a running, a shoe store. A running, a running <laughs> shoe store. Yeah. Um, because um, I just was all over the place and I didn't know what to do. And I'm not a very tactile person, but I just uh-huh. knew I needed to be grounded. So I went in there and I think like this 21-year-old kid, um, I basically said to him, I don't know what size my feet are. And I said that because I knew he'd pull out one of those little metal things that measures. Oh, that's right. Yes, to measure. Your, yep. Yeah. Yep. And all I, I mean, that's all I did. And, and my whole motivation was I just need someone to touch me. Oh, I know there's a shoe shop. I'll pretend I don't know what, you know. And so he got out his little measuring thing. He measured my foot. I tried on his shoes. Then I felt really terrible, so I bought a pair of socks. (laughs) (laughs) But I think that is so great. You know, it's these little things. You know, when we're talking about the world has anxiety and sometimes people need therapy or medication. And yes, we know about meditation and we know about this and that. But what does someone do, you know, when they're starting to have a panic attack in a mall? And I I really think it's, it's just like you said, run to the nearest person. And if you're, if you're not going to literally go, I'm having a panic attack. I'm sorry. I don't know you. Just like you said, you know, um, get a manicure, have the shoe attendant measure your foot. We've all had that experience, haven't we? Where we've felt really anxious and then somebody might just stop you in the street and ask for the time and start talking to you. Yeah. And you're fixed, right? I used to have a really just, I mean, the terror I used to have, the phobia of flying I had was so insane. I I can't even describe it. And um, I remember my psychiatrist saying, well, why don't you just say to the flight attendant, I'm anxious. And I went on and on. There's nothing they can do. And blah, 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 blah. And he's like, I get it. But just saying it out loud will take its power away. And then you realize, oh, I guess I'm kind of ashamed to say that to someone. It's a primal need. It's it's beyond our rational mind. And if we work out that we can just attend to that with a couple of 
things like that. The other thing is, of course, is, um, you know, I'm just thinking of some of the other really dorky things that I do. Mm-hmm. I will go and choose the wobbliest table at a cafe. You probably remember that chapter mm-hmm. where I will have a day off. I'll suddenly have this incredible opportunity to go and sit in a cafe and do what I see all these other people do when I, you know, I'm running late for a meeting. I'm like, who are these people that sit at cafes on a weekday, you know? <laughs> and so I'd finally go and do that. And then the then the, exper- the overwhelming kind of desire to make it as perfect as possible would see me have a panic attack in the middle of the street. So what I worked out was that I would on purpose choose the grimmest looking cafe on the strip. I would then go and choose the wobbliest table at the cafe under the speaker that's crackling. And then I'd just choose whatever coffee. I wouldn't like a manar. I'd just choose whatever came to me. And I would use it as a practice in grim in sitting in the shit, you know, Mm. and just seeing how bad it can be. And every time I did it and I ran it as an experiment and I have a little phrase in my head, let's see, as in let you, me, the universe, the whole kind of lovely flow of life, see what happens next, right? And I would sit there and I remember um, the chef came out and he'd made an extra muffin that had sort of crumbled and he said, oh, would you like this? you know, and then um, somebody who I hadn't seen in ages happened to walk past and they Mm. sat down with me for a bit at my wobbly table. And um, it was a really, it's been a really great way for me to conquer my perfectionism, which is often goes hand in hand with um, anxiety. And um, so, yeah, in, in many ways, being playful, being experimental and curious around it is another fix. Curious. That's right. Yeah. You meant you've talked about that where there really is a connection, you know, between anxiety and curiosity in terms of turning it into, oh, you know, it's funny. We talk about getting in our bodies, but sometimes we have to kind of disconnect from our anxious thoughts, right? Start looking at them. That's right. And that process then becomes a mindfulness process or a practice. And of course, you've mentioned before that the deep breathing, the meditation, it can be a bridge too far when you're anxious. Like I That's get That's a it. great way to put it. Yes, yes. When you're in the middle of a, an anxious spell, it's kind of like don't tell me to t- drink chamomile tea and deep breathe <laughs> because it can, and it can actually make things worse. So what uh-huh. I do is these other things and, and curiosity is a really great thing. So optimally you choose a habit that's um, going to be more charming because you'll choose it. Now curiosity, if you switch out um, ruminating and fretting with curiosity, curiosity is a very charming alternative and it becomes the habit you go into. And what do you know? It's a mindfulness technique. So it amps up its powerfulness, you know, exponentially. So that's a technique that I use is let's see, let's run the experiment. And my meditation teacher somewhat ironically says to me, he says this phrase all the time, keep the camera rolling. The camera's still rolling. You know? oh, what does he mean by that? I think I know what you mean, but tell me what what is that? Well, we don't know where this great uh, film of yours is going to end up. So, you know, you might have a story in your head, oh, that's not going to work, or right. this wobbly table is going to lead to a horrible experience and I'm just going to get pissed off with everyone. Um, no, just keep the camera rolling and what do you know? The muffin comes out. Oh, that's great, yeah. You just keep the camera rolling and and, and I find that, Uh, that's curiosity. Oh, well, I can probably keep it rolling for another 10 seconds longer, another 30 seconds. I'll just keep it. And what do you know that becomes, it becomes your way of living. 
That is a great, and, and it's funny too. I love the way that you call curiosity charming. You almost picture on a date, you know, with a charming person who is asking you about you instead of blah, blah, blah about themselves. You know, it's like, it's, it's such a great way to think about it. Like be a fun date with yourself, you know, ask yourself questions. Don't just tell yourself the same old story over and over. You know, if you're anxious, I love, I love that. Yeah. And it's open as opposed to closed. It goes in the opposite direction to anxiety. Mm. Anxiety is closed and rigid, whereas curiosity is open and fluid. And this is what we're doing with anxiety when you're in that rut and we're trying to modulate it. So we get to that nice sweet spot where we're doing anxiety once. Yeah. You know, it really is about stopping that being anxious about being anxious and going down that loop. And you do that by opening up, softening around it, allowing yourself to be anxious for a moment sitting at that table. But you don't try, you know, the wobbly table, but you don't try to shut it down. You just remain curious and open. And then you just do the anxiety once. It gives you the permission to let the anxiety do its thing. Um, and then you move on because anxiety lasts maximum 25 to 30 minutes. Yeah. And it's such a good feeling when it ends <laughs> and you go, oh my God, that's it. That was it. But we prevent ourselves from seeing yeah. it end because we get anxious about being anxious. We've already yeah. moved on to the next anxious loop, you know? <laughs> anxiety Bites will be right back after a quick little message from one of our sponsors. From BBC Radio 4. Britain's biggest paranormal podcast is going on a road trip. I thought in that moment, oh my God, we've summoned something from this board. This is Uncanny USA. He says, somebody's in the house, and I screamed. Listen to Uncanny USA wherever you get your BBC podcasts. If you dare. started talking about this incident. Drugs and uh, officials cover up. <laughs> you couldn't believe it. From iHeart Podcasts. It's like the police knew who he was before they got here. A story about money, power, and corruption. The medical school dean at USC was leading a secret double life. She's breathing right now? Yes, she's absolutely breathing. I'm a doctor, actually. There's no way that that guy's a doctor. I'm Paul Pringle, and I'm an investigative reporter for the LA Times. This is the story of an investigation that starts in a hotel room in Pasadena, California, and reaches all the way to the top of two of the most powerful institutions in the city of Los Angeles. When people fall in line, they fall in line. Looking back, I realized, oh, everyone knew. This is Fallen Angels, a story of California corruption. We're always going to have predators. It's the good people who stand by and do nothing that allow them to flourish. Listen to Fallen Angels, a story of California corruption, on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcast, or wherever you get your podcasts. Hey, everybody. Welcome to Across Generations, where the voices of Black women unite in powerful conversations. I'm your host, Tiffany Cross. Tiffany Cross. I want you all to join me and be a part of sisterhood, friendship, wisdom, and laughter. In every episode, we gather a seasoned elder. But even with a child, there's no such thing as the wrong thing if you love them. Myself, as the middle generation. 
I don't feel like I have to get married at this big age in life, but it is a desire I have and something that I've navigated in dating and a vibrant young soul for engaging intergenerational conversations. I'm very jealous of your generation (laughs) that didn't have to deal with Instagram and Tinder. This is Across Generations, where Black women's voices unite, and together, you know how we do, we create magic. magic. Listen to Across Generations podcast on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. Finding the right news podcast can feel like dating. It seems promising until you start listening. When you hit play on Post Reports, you'll get fascinating conversations and sometimes a little fun, too. I'm Martine Powers. And I'm Elahe Azadi. Martine and I are the hosts of Post Reports. The show comes out every weekday from The Washington Post. You can follow and listen to Post Reports wherever you get your podcasts. It'll be a match, I promise. Hey, my name's Jay Shetty, and I'm the host of On Purpose. I just had a great conversation with Michael B. Jordan, and you can listen to it right now. Michael is known for his performances in both film and television. His breakout role was in Fruitvale Station, playing Oscar Grant, which earned him widespread praise and numerous award nominations. His portrayal of Killmonger in Marvel's Black Panther, one of my favorites, further solidified his status as one of Hollywood's leading actors, earning him widespread acclaim for his complex and compelling performance. In our conversation, Michael really opens up. You're going to love listening to it, and I can't wait for you to check it out. The closest to getting what you want is always the hardest. It's always the feeling when you're getting ready. You know, people give up right before they get what they've always wanted to get. People quit. Listen to On Purpose with Jay Shetty on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcast, or wherever you get your podcasts. What I was reading about, you had mentioned that you felt it was easier for you, and I don't know where you're at today with this, to be not in a relationship. And you talked about um, anxiety in romantic relationships where sometimes the anxious person can be, you know, acting anxious, but has nothing to do with the partner. You know, it is not that you're anxious at them. Is it you are trying to control the world and they just happen to be in the way? You know, that's not what you said. I'm just paraphrasing. There's two things you can say to that. I think um, another human um, holds a mirror up to your your weaknesses, your dark side, yeah. and and that's a wonderful thing. And so we should mm-hmm. always seek out those people that hold a mirror up to us. So I don't think we should run from relationships, but I would also say that we need to foster meaningful relationships with ourselves and to be able to sit alone. And that might be while you've got a husband and kids or it might be while, you know, you're, you're a single person um, who's feeling loneliness. Um, yeah. So really having a relationship with yourself in all kinds of circumstances, out with people in, inter- in an intimate relationship when you're sitting at home feeling a bit fretful that you've got nothing on for the weekend um, and there you are on the couch with your cats, developing a relationship with yourself is really, really important. There was one part in your book where you said, it was just a little thing that I really keyed into. You, you just said, um, quote, I got pulled up on something, too personal to mention here, sorry. And uh, you just mentioned like you had a little personal issue, you worked it out. And I thought that was so interesting because I'm sure people say this to you. They say it to me. Um, I, I've I've written books and I, I do comedy for a living and, and I talk about my life, but it's 
they say, uh, you're very revealing and honest and you know, is there anything you don't talk about? And I'm like, 99% of my life I don't talk about, you know? Mm -hmm. As an artist who has a relationship to anxiety, has had anxiety, has anxiety, did you have to learn at some point the difference between uh, revealing what needed to be revealed in your work and oversharing? Because I think oversharing, right, is a big anxiety thing. It's a big symptom, I think. Um, Was that something that was hard? Um, yes and no. For me, I write to ensure that, you know, to be of service in the best way mm-hmm. I can. And um, so th- th- the lens that I put it through is, will this help people? If it will, then absolutely I go there and I have no problem going there. I mean, as you know, I talk about suicide and my mm-hmm. suicide attempts in, in quite some detail. And my publisher, when she was about to publish the book, went, do you, you know, are you sure about this? And I went, yes, um, because I had time to, I mean, the great thing about writing a book is it's not like social media. You reflect on it, you go through several copy edits, um, you have to lie awake at night ruminating and then you get up in the morning and go, mm, going to modify that. But with yeah. my latest book, I actually talk about miscarriage and I talk about abortion. Mm. And um, I went through that whole thing again. Is this something that I'm trying to get sympathy from people for or is it because I feel like, and I really did, I've erred on the side of I do need to say something here because we are always talking about how women need to talk about this. And here I am with a public forum, 300-odd pages in a book, that will get published Mm. around the world. And my book is about getting radically, wildly uh, intimate about this one wild and precious life we have and about radical connection in Mm. in a time where we're all scared, we're all standing around the edges and we need people to go first. So it's no heroic thing. And in fact, what I love is that the story just becomes something that people take on board for themselves. Um, I, I never have people coming up to me and going, you poor thing, are you okay? Which is great. That means my message has been all about other people drawing their message in via, via the, the weft and the weave of mine. Yeah, that means you really did a great job as an artist. Like you, you actually communicated it exactly how you wanted it. Yeah. I, and I don't want people's sympathy. I don't want people's sympathy. So when people come up to me in the supermarket, they tell me their story. I can tell you now that we have a Are You Okay Day here. I think it's international now. Um, but it's so funny. You know, I was ambassador the first year and I don't think I've ever been rung by anyone ever. You know, the whole premise is you ring somebody or you contact somebody and ask them, Are You Okay? And it's so funny. Everybody, I mean, there's several hundred thousand people around the world that know I have anxiety, right? Um, yeah. And yet I've never, I've never been rung on Are You OK Day. But <laughs> that's because I don't think people see me as that person that you need to do that for. And so, and I am super glad all I am is a, a vehicle through which, you know, I'm a conduit. Yeah. All I do is I stay with the problem long enough, partly because I don't have a relationship and my relationship is with my writing. And so I stay with the problem longer because I have that luxury and I can put it onto paper and other people go, that's exactly what I was thinking. <laughs> I hope you enjoyed my conversation with Sarah Wilson. And again, if you enjoy this podcast, please leave me a five-star review on Apple Podcasts. It's all I want for Christmas. And I know that Christmas has already come and gone, but that's okay. You can get me a belated gift, five-star review on 
Apple Podcasts, what that does is it does something fancy and magic to the algorithm. It makes more people find the podcast. And the more people that find the podcast, the less people we have freaking out on airplanes who need to be duct taped to their seat. So it's a win-win. You are helping me. You're helping society. So please go do your part when you have a second. Or you can find me on Twitter at Jen Kirkman and tell me how much you love the show. And let's get into some of the takeaways we learned from speaking with Sarah Wilson today. My favorite takeaway is that even the Dalai Lama cannot stop the noise in his head and that the Dalai Lama thinks that we should all be focusing on altruism and of being of service to others. Sarah believes you can be anxious and live a purposeful, beautiful life at the same time. Sarah believes that not only can you live with anxiety, but you can thrive because of it. Think of our friend Darwin, who had panic attacks. We make the beast beautiful is from a Chinese proverb. Sarah believes that for herself, being playful, experimental, and curious around anxiety can help us in a moment of great anxiety. And as Sarah's mentor taught her with the analogy, keep the camera rolling. We can prevent ourselves from seeing an end to our anxiety because we are busy getting anxious about being anxious. We need to try to have a compassionate understanding of the role that anxiety plays in our lives. And that's all I got for you today. So I hope you get, again, hope you enjoyed this episode. Hope you're loving the show. New episode next week. And just remember, yes, anxiety bites, but you're in control. For more podcasts from iHeartRadio, visit the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you listen to your favorite shows. I'm Katia Adler, host of The Global Story. Over the last 25 years, I've covered conflicts in the Middle East, political and economic crises in Europe, drug cartels in Mexico. Now I'm covering the stories behind the news all over the world in conversation with those who break it. Join me Monday to Friday to find out what's happening, why, and what it all means. Follow The Global Story from the BBC wherever you listen to podcasts. It's like the police knew who he was before they got here. From iHeart Podcasts. The medical school dean at USC was leading a secret double life. Breathing. Right now? Yes, he's absolutely breathing. I'm a doctor, actually. A story about money, power, and corruption. When people fall in line, they fall in line. Looking back, I realized, oh, everyone knew. I'm Paul Pringle, an investigative reporter for the LA Times. Listen to Fallen Angels, a story of California corruption, on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcast, or wherever you get your podcasts. The Therapy for Black Girls podcast is your space to explore mental health, personal development, and all of the small decisions we can make to become the best possible versions of ourselves. I'm your host, Dr. Joy Harden-Bradford, a licensed psychologist in Atlanta, Georgia, and I can't wait for you to join the conversation every Wednesday. Listen to the Therapy for Black Girls podcast on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. Take good care, and we'll see you there. Hey, I'm Jay Shetty, and I'm the host of the On Purpose podcast, and I had the opportunity to talk to one of Hollywood's major icons, Michael B. Jordan. In our conversation, Michael shares the highs, the lows, and everything in between, offering a genuine glimpse into his world. The closest to getting what you want is always the hardest. People give up right before they get what they've always wanted to get. Listen to On Purpose with Jay Shetty on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. 
My whole life, I've been told this one story about my family, about how my great-great-grandmother was killed by the mafia back in Sicily. I was never sure if it was true, so I decided to find out. And even though my Uncle Jimmy told me I'd only be making the vendetta worse, I'm going to Sicily anyway. Come to Italy with me to solve this 100-year-old murder mystery. Listen to The Sicilian Inheritance on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts.